Beauty and Time. All of us are creatures of space and time, and we're taught concepts about what is safe and what is real <clears throat> and what we should do in the next moment based on what's happened in the past. We often cause a direction of movement based on antipathy and fear and regret and disdain and confusion, really, <clears throat> because we're afraid that if we pause for that one moment of time in eternity, the space that is mysterious will not bring forward something blessed, something protected, something affirming. So we decide, <clears throat> I'll create the universe in this moment. And then the direction we're facing is not one of beauty, but one of harm <clears throat> or anxiety or conflict, where we're determined, I'll either be a victim of this or I'll win. And the way I would describe it is eternity and the source or absolute or creator or God, father, mother, that whose name is so holy we can't say it, taught Ahura Mazda, the Tao. <clears throat> we are reaching out, flailing like a child, frightened that they'll fall down or conflicted taking their first step and crying to the mother or father, reaching with her hands. And <clears throat> the mother or father or grandparent or older sibling puts their hands out and helps that little child take a step. <clears throat> and the child is toddling. We call it in the English language a toddler because they're walking uncertainly for those few years between infancy and true childhood. And much of what we ascertain as our path is based upon the moral guidance and virtue embodied by the people who birth us and raise us through gestation, infancy, and those first years. So <clears throat> what occurs in people raised with a great deal of virtue is when they turn from the present moment to the last moment or one before that, <clears throat> they move into a resonance of history, which is affirming in beauty. <clears throat> Often in spiritual terms, we use the word love. And you're welcome to utilize that word whenever you're moved to in your heart and soul. But I'm intentionally using the word beauty so that <clears throat> we call this forward no matter what we're looking at in space. So that we seek to find the Creator's fingerprint. We seek to find in space some gesture of the Creator's signature, and then we meet the Creator and go, oh, time, oh, that next moment. And then the imprint we have is one of holiness or heaven or a sense of something true 
<clears throat> and if we really look, it doesn't harm anyone. This is the home of the mystic. And so it would be my home. And so as I look out the window before me, I have at the windowsill two figures of alabaster doves which belonged to the women of Blaine's family, his mother and his father and her parents before that and probably her parents before that. I'm sure they came from Italy. They were very popular at a certain period of time of my grandparents and great-grandparents. And I grew up with my father's mother having been brought by her two sisters, Julie and Beatrice, a small coral-colored or amber-colored alabaster bird bath with four little white alabaster doves on it. It was one of the cherished items of Grandma and Grandpa's home. It came to me when my grandmother died. My mother was surprised that, it lo that I loved it so much. It was the stone. It was the way she let me come and hold it or make sure the little doves were set carefully. They were on little sticks that let them be in holes at the top of the bird bath at the edges. <clears throat> so did I love the bird bath or the alabaster from the ground of Italy and some man who dug that stone and the women of his family? Or did I love the sense of the creator in it? Or did I love the fact that my grandmother, God rest her soul, was beside me so that I would seek beauty every moment of my life? And I have to say that one of the great qualities of Anna's love for me has been an unfailing direction of regarding God in everything and everyone. She imbued that courage into my heart, and she lived that with her own parents and her siblings and her work. Not perfectly, I'm sure. I don't do so perfectly, I am sure. But that direction will never fail you. You will always be shown a resonance of God, of the universe, of that within yourself and the direction in space you're facing at any moment throughout your life. And then you will know in your heart and soul, responding responsibly what to embody and enact in space in that next moment. And the gesture will never really demean what is holy in another person. You're calling forward their own meeting with their creator, with their origin as a soul, <clears throat> with their existence as a soul, with their path. And then in you comes the next breath. And this quality is very unusual. And yet, when we turn to our great artists, our people studying holiness, our philosophers, our healers, we are studying the space and time of this domain, this home upon the earth or throughout the universe. I have in front of me a, a beautiful desk calendar it's a moderately priced calendar from the Victorian Albert Collections in London. I bought it online this sometime this autumn. 
So for some people, it would be extravagant, although it's quite modest in my world. For some people, they would think it's common. Why didn't I buy a leather-bound one, have my initials imprinted on the cover? And I simply felt moved to use that before me this year. So my husband came home about two weeks ago, and he asked, what is that What is that with your pile of books on the kitchen table? And I said, oh, it's, a, it's a, my calendar for the year. And he asked, what does it say on the front? He, he, it didn't make sense what he was looking at. It has flowers on the cover. It has a plum color at the, at the binding. It has a blue grosgrain ribbon coming down inside where you turn it to the any week you want, but I keep it constant with the present week. And it says V&A Diary 2023. So when I read him that, it took my reading it twice. And he goes, oh, 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 Victorian Albert. And I said, yes. Okay, so if we turn to the week that I'm in right now, in, in mid-January, I keep flipping without meaning to, you know, just as I open the book. And it, the pages go a few, week, a few weeks before, a few weeks after. And the last few weeks when I do this, it opens up naturally to a page that kind of takes my breath away. I go, oh, this is so beautiful. It's for the last week of... January and the first week of February. And it has on the left-hand side the dates in which I've written, you know, plans I have, my itinerary, different things I'm doing that week. And on the right-hand side is a watercolor. It's called Spring. It was painted by Frederick Walker from England in 1864. You might want to look up, if you're able, on a computer and regard this. And... I found it incredibly beautiful. I can't imagine being gifted enough to paint such a watercolor, but he was. I know nothing about him. And yet here, a hundred and some years later, after his painting of it, after the life of that young girl and the other person behind her, who's probably her mother, or guardian, but probably her mother, I'm before the, the, the branches of the winter with no leaves, the, the leaves, the dead leaves from the past autumn, brown on the ground. The mottled brown and green of the winter grass. The dark winter clothes of their woolen and warm garments. Her hair tied back to stay covered and yet warm. Trees behind them where there is simply the deep trunks in the distance behind them. The gray winter sky is snow coming or just a, a cool, cold winter day. And the woman in the back is picking certain flowers. And the young girl woman in the front is standing beside a, a, a bush, which has the tiniest buds coming. And in her hand, she's holding a small bouquet of the first spring flowers which have ever risen. I know this kind of experience from the many years of my infancy and childhood up to the age of my early 20s in the northeastern United States, where such an experience was constant for me every year. Oh, winter to spring. Oh, there are the first flowers. They've come. Not through me. I had nothing to do with them except receiving the blessing and bounty of them. I've also known older women 
and men, but mostly women, who have been aware, oh, my roses didn't make it this year. Well, I'll try something else this summer. Or look at the daffodils this spring. So magnificent. Or, well, the flowers I tried in the front bed, they just don't work in this climate. And what I find inside of myself is an understanding that <clears throat> women and men throughout history have planted in the autumn season, the winter season, the spring season, at whatever time they were taught by their own parents, elders, ancestors. This is the time to collect the seeds, to dry the seeds, to store or dampen the seeds and then plant. The Zuni and Hopi and Pueblo people make beautiful small pottery jars traditionally with tiny holes in the top so that they might fill the little pot with seeds, but have the hole in the top be so tiny that mice couldn't get inside. And then when it was time to plant, they could shake, they could turn upside down and shake the beautiful, beautiful pottery from the earth of the region of the Southwestern United States. Whenever I see a seed pot from one of these tribes, I'm so moved by it. Imagine the thousands of years when there wasn't a grocery store. There wasn't another farmer who maybe did better than you did. There might be no fruit that year. There might be lots of fruit, a bounty, so that it could be given away and shared or canned or dried and stored. And so <clears throat> the rhythm of receiving this blessing and then embodying in the next breath, the movement forward, what comes to me in the next moment in the space all around my incarnation? Am I receptive to, ready to receive the beauty of that from the alabaster doves of Blaine's family and of my family and of all the people in Italy who created them? It's such a strong resonance for me that I've mentioned before, when I've been in other countries working, I've actually stopped in a marketplace heading somewhere in Egypt, in Cairo, Egypt, on an uh, urban pathway through, through a very um, congested area. And I stopped, wait a minute, I, I have to go back here. And people with me said, what are you doing? There was a small alabaster bowl. And I simply asked the man, how, how much is the bowl? And do you have others? And I bought several bowls from him to give his gifts to loved ones and to keep one for myself, in which I put my rings or earrings, alabaster, a very soft stone. The little lamp at my bedside is shaped like a vase. It takes a very small electric wattage. It's made of white alabaster. It, it was not expensive. It would be now because there's almost no alabaster left in our known civilized world where we've quarried it before. So it's hard to come by. Is that lamp dear to anyone? I, I have no idea, but it is certainly dear to me. It expresses beauty every day. It expresses beauty every night. 
And in that realm of the direction of beauty in eternity behind me, at present within me and before me, I am studying the home of God. And there's no one who can cause me to not accept the beauty and the painting of spring. By Frederick Walker. I'll read about him. I know nothing about him. I'm so grateful at the gift given to him, at the materials allowed him so that he could express something. And again, over a century later, have us speaking of his painting and finding the understanding between us and among us beyond all argument. Oh, the Ottoman winter has come. The difficult storm, arguments in this family, tensions in that one. Look at the bouquet in her hand, in her left hand as her right hand reaches to the branch of the bush. What is she doing? What is she seeking? The flowers in her hand are not from the bush. They're small primroses or such uh, flowers of a bulb or plant that are that grow in the cool, shady areas of the northern climates and of the far southern hemisphere's climates. Primroses are very hard to grow where I live. They didn't grow easily where I grew up, so they're astonishing flowers to me. And yet crocuses, snowdrops, tiny bluebells would peek out through the snow and everyone who would see them would realize we are nearing the end of winter. Beauty is showing us that we are moving into the spring. What shall that mean? So let us say that we go through a very hard time and we don't know what to do as we face forward. We, we are in a point of argument with a loved one or something with work or finances or health. I would ask you to consider always allowing the practice of beauty. Oh, I'm here at the doctor's or getting an herb or uh, talking to a family member about my health or the baby's coming and I don't know what to do. I go, go and look at the flowers blooming outside the window. Go for a walk outside their home or hospital and allow beauty is receiving this baby as he or she or they come to the earth. Beauty is receiving the midwife or nurse practitioner or OBGYN physician or the grandmother or the mother or father all the men of the family, any siblings, and you and me. We are turning ourselves toward allowing the responsibility of that bouquet of holiness to be our home, as it is in the great mystics and in the modest mystics. We study the great ones who've been part of our history and contemplate, how did this person do this? How did St. Francis do this? How did St. John of the Cross do this? We would have to ask them, and yet we have writings that tell us aspects of their expression of home on earth, heaven on earth, and hell on earth in them too. They often went through difficult things. And I would like to bring forward an aspect of the difficulty because I think people study this idea that 
<clears throat> you know, the poisoning of the Buddha or the crucifixion of Jesus is something to hold. You know, I, I've got to hold being on the cross. I go, no, let's turn toward the beauty of what happened in Jesus and the love for him in John and Mary and Joseph of Arimathea as they took him down from the cross. And the Roman soldiers who decided to let him be taken away by his loved ones instead of keeping his body. And everything that happened from that moment forward, from whatever occurred at his death and the Spear of Longinus forward, what happened in beauty? Then what we are doing is we are allowing the protection and blessing and guidance and well-being of Jesus and Longinus, who uh, prodded or, or cast the spear, and Mary and Magdalene and John and Joseph of Arimathea and anyone else who was present or nearby or frightened, and then any person of any faith, and then any person of any culture. And we then find in our hearts and souls that we begin to open like the flowers in that young girl's hand or in the earth and uh, resplendent trees and shrubs beginning their movement towards spring all around her, just as she is moving toward her adult life. Care taken by the woman whose face is turned away as she's gathering flowers and letting this young girl woman come forward to be received by us. How shall we do that? How shall we do this with any young girl, woman, or boy, man, or person on this earth? Then beyond anxiety, the beauty of something being given as a gift of relationship between heaven and oneself always occurs, always. That is who you are. That is who I am. And then we begin to move in a pathway where this is our signature. And we are studying a map of a direction. How shall I do this? Well, beauty and beauty and beauty. <coughs> if we look at people who've been through horrific experiences, Many times we find that we're astonished at something noble that they said or did or were able to realize and express. Well, that is ours to do as well and to be as well. And when we're frightened or we react, it's because we've been taught something bad will happen. I have to wait until I see what happens and then I'll know what to do so that I conquer the other person or I, I win in the situation and that's not really the point. The point would be for heaven to win, for heaven to come forward and exist for everyone involved. And so that would be the mystic's homework, to be a direction for the human being in that regard. If we take stories from our cultural history, <clears throat> we can 
take positions for and against people. And I'm going to use them as a very tender conversation in the northern um, North American countries right now, United States and Canada. And it is in other nations as well with different cultural groups. In our history, <clears throat> as the United States and Canada, as settlers came in from the Indo-European cultures and met different native tribal people, there was an understanding that the Indo-European culture knew what it was doing and that the native culture did not. And so a person might come in and decide, this tribal boy or girl doesn't know anything. I want them to know how to read and write and do mathematics and cut their hair and live in a certain way and speak English or French or Spanish. And so often against their will, Native peoples were taken to go to schools and to have to live in a way that was this particular cultural concept of civilization. And right now it's very glamorous to demonize the Indo-European culture's way of doing this and portray the experience as a horrific, um, sadistic experience. And I'm sure that for some people in all different parts of the global culture, that has been true. Just as I'm sure that for every human being, there's something that has been a horrific experience of a misuse of power by other beings or oneself or a combination of people. And yet beauty and time remembered from the past, embodied in this present moment, and expressed responsibly in the next moment will surely show us from a human global civilization how to tend each other from various linguistic groups and cultural groups of what to do. So if we were in the far Arctic, and this happened when I lived there as a very young woman, uh, and someone became too cold and hypothermic, as happened to two young women working with me. They went out swimming. <clears throat> they were in water that was 37 degrees, and even though they were very athletic, they became hypothermic and they were frightened. They couldn't get warm. So the old women came and took care of them. The women didn't speak English. And I'm telling you, they knew exactly what to do. They took the most beautiful care of the two women. There was beauty. Oh, these two women, ignorant of the nature of how powerful the winter is here, even in the water of the summer. We will care for them here in our village. They were a thousand miles from a city, way out in an area called Bristol Bay, a village called Togiak. And these women took as intimate care of them as if they were their own daughters. And then dressing them, having them drink something warm, having them lie down and rest. And one of the women named Betsy asked me the next day, why did they do that? Why would they take care of us? I mean, we're just, you know, why, why would they take care of, of us? Beauty. Love embodied from eternity 
through Yupik Eskimo women and men in that moment forward into the lives of those two women and myself. Just as the painting of Frederick Walker. So what occurs is there tends to be a sense of silence or, oh, something vast and yet humble that we enter when we experience this. And we tend to become like a little child that's afraid that there will be monsters under the bed or something evil out there. We're afraid then what will happen? I go, well, that's up to you and me. Beauty. In all directions of time. Then when we turn toward time, we realize something that is a blessing that has occurred. And that starts to show us what to do forward. So I talk about this with the uh, Native schools that occurred because there's a lot in film and writing now that's just really very volatile and kind of the processing of the shadow of who we are and what we all do to each other. And we're sort of doing this through a lot of our cultural and racial discussions, you know, which resulted in killing Martin Luther King Jr., which has resulted in killing Gandhi. It's not really the way, is it? But it is what we did, all of us. In including Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., their own volatile anger and reactions. And I go, okay, so what do we do now? I go, well, <clears throat> if we could look past to the past breath and the past breath and the past breath and all of their breaths and all of our breaths as human beings and take something from the beauty of the alabaster doves or the watercolor painting or the old women dressing my two friends, my colleagues, bathing them and dressing them in a sauna, a maki, it's called maki, bringing in the firewood, which is almost non-existent in the area. So someone had to walk miles or go in about miles to bring the firewood. Did the women realize how rare the usage of that was? The deer spending of that resource on their behalf. And yet those trees that were cut down in the tundra area, probably along the Togiak River, they blessed that the women who called forward honoring God and those two daughters of another culture. And the two women were changed forever by the behavior. Betsy just cried. She goes, I mean, I'm a good person, but she just couldn't believe it. Even her own family did not treat her with the same intimacy. She realized that it had changed her, awakened her, transformed her, the beauty. So as she faced the next breath and direction of what she would do that autumn and winter and going on back to Minnesota where she was from, it changed her perception. Well, what I really want to do with my life is this. So she just contemplated that and then entered that, those aspects of her world. That was almost 50 years ago. <clears throat> so in oneself, how do we live so that the direction of beauty and time 
becomes resonant with heaven, God, the creator. So I'll add to that, the villages, I've probably worked and traveled to about 77 villages uh, throughout the Alaskan bush. They ranged in size from about 75 to 80 people up to maybe 400 people. Um, the largest one had maybe 750 people at that time, but most of them were between 75 and about 300 people. There would be no phones or one satellite phone, no computers. It was before that time. <clears throat> and I would work with the children and so people the elders would come and watch me you know and intensely and then they would decide she's all right and they would let me be very close to their children it was just gloriously beautiful children from 18 months of age up to about 18 <clears throat> and I would be invited to someone's home. Would you like to come over some evening and sit with us? So I might go and sit, and people might sit for three hours and not say anything. And as I spent a total of five summers, by the time I reached the second summer, all of a sudden the family would start telling me a story. There was adequate beauty in one of those people or a couple or a person and their spouse and one of their mothers to convey to me the direction of beauty and also what they were studying as cultural homework as human beings. So a conversation would begin, you know, it was very hard for us when our son was sent away to the Indian school in Juneau. And then it would be very quiet. The school is good, you know, he needed to learn these things but we didn't get to see him again from August until Christmas. I can only imagine. And then the place of beauty for them was, he was such a good fisherman, you know? He was just at the age where we needed him for the salmon runs. But they didn't understand that at the school, so they took him. He's a good fisherman now, though. Finished school, good grades, good fisherman. I was fortunate enough to have deep experiences in my young adult years with tribal people who, although they were not and I was not perfect, understood receiving the direction of beauty from profound winter into spring, just as in the beautiful painting, the Walker painting. These were people who might see the first snowfall come in September and not have the frozen mood of winter leave them until June. So virtually every day in the summer months was spent gathering firewood, fish, sewing, clothing, uh, waterproof sealskin jackets for the men to go out in their kayaks in the sea. Then their communication with me, the women, how frightening the sea was. A man might go out and not come back. And I would be aware, wow, wow, this, is, this has happened to her mother's brother. I see, wow. As she would be sitting on the floor, Stitching, which is very difficult to do, sealskin, 
and it's telling me I've got to make the the seams almost waterproof so that he doesn't get too cold or damp. Wolverine around the face, which I've spoken of many times because it doesn't frost, so they wouldn't get frostbite on their eyebrows and cheekbones and and face. This quality of meeting beauty with beauty, meeting the next moment with the perception that there is a path that is dignified and has a purpose. So in this particular time when the cancel culture is so strong, I turn to, I'm going to use two sort of superficial examples. If I look at football and and the World Cup and different sports, you know, I have many friends who love sports. My my father was a great lover of sports and a, a great champion, actually, in his years at Cornell. He was called a triple threat in football. And I've said many times, the only game his mother, he was an only child, the only game his mother ever attended, my father's jaw was broken by somebody from the Notre Dame team. And my, my grandmother was just beside herself, right? She came to watch her son. He and my mother had asked her for the last two years, please, you know, Anna, please come to, please, mom, come to a game. So Anna came and what happened? Whammo, my father got hit. And they had to wire his jaw and he had to drink milkshakes and juice for, I don't know, six weeks or something. And so my grandmother was beside herself. And then where is the beauty? Well, my father became a very protective coach and guiding his young boys, young boy men to play football, baseball, track, safely as best he could, pushing them with nobility, but not beyond their endurance or well-being. He would only have them do something he felt he himself could accomplish. So he began his track season by having the young boy men run a race with him. He would run it with them. He said, I decided when I couldn't stay up with them anymore, beat them or stay up with them, it was time for me to go in another direction, more as the history teacher and more as an administrator. So beauty for him was the shared sense of the team with the coach, the team's relationship to one another. He loved that. He loved that. So I like looking at sports for that reason. What is the team doing? What is the city doing? What is the country doing in the Olympics, in a tennis match, in a ballet dancer, in his or her company? (coughs) So this autumn, we had the World Cup, which meets every four years. It was very controversial globally. The press is that way right now. The way to get a story told is to say, I'm going to argue this point. I'm going to argue that point. And then we look to see, what does he have to say? What does she have to say? But the team coming together of the human race, what is that? Well, that is beauty, is it not? How do we regard the beauty in the World Cup? So as I talked to different people, they would say, you're not going to watch the World Cup. I said, I probably am going to watch some of it. How could you do that? So many people were killed building the stadium. I said, well, I'd like to pray for them too. I'd like to pray for the people who made it safe and the ones who didn't make it safe enough. 
I'd like to pray for Qatar. I'd like to pray for all the teams. I'd like to pray for all the world and be with the world through observing maybe one to several of the games. And then what we tend to do is say, well, that person, they just didn't do well enough. So uh, last evening there were football games here in the United States, and in one game that was played by the Dallas Cowboys team, which is from the area that I reside in, the, the kicker during this game with uh, Tampa Bay with a Florida team, which has probably the most accomplished quarterback in history, Tom Brady, who's now 45 and is in the midst of great transition in his own life with a divorce and aging. And These two teams are playing, and <clears throat> Dallas scored several touchdowns. But the kicker who kicks tries to kick a last point. They try to kick one point after a touchdown, or they try to run in two points. So the kicker is usually a, a slightly smaller man, very adept at kicking the ball. And the kicker missed, I believe, four kicks. It had never been done in playoff history. And, you know, the different commentators were just going to tear this young man apart. I prayed for him. I thought, don't tear this man apart. I couldn't do it. None of you could do it. Who knows what was going on with him? Dallas had enough points. They didn't need to humiliate him or beat Tampa Bay with even more Owen. It's important to me that all the men played well, nobly, and met as teammates of the human civilization on that field, and their coaches, and you and me. Then, wouldn't that be an example for our children, no matter their culture, how to go forward? So, in my conversations, which occurred over a period of years with Native uh, Alaskans, and then afterwards with people I've known from Twyla Nitsch to Bearheart to several people from the uh, Pueblo tribes and southwestern tribes from the Diné to the Hopi and Zuni, they would quietly tell me if I were with other people or if I were alone with one of the great elders. You know, when I was at school, it was very hard for me. I missed my parents so much. But I wouldn't be able to have been a professor and write my book if I hadn't gone to that school. They, they were able somehow, through the noble understanding of beauty in their traditional culture, how to have let the Indo-European people of my culture come in and affect them and have the resonance to meet me with beauty in that moment and my next breath and yours into eternity wherever those great souls are. Twyla Nitsch talked to me a number of times of what it was like to be taken away from her family, and the, the family didn't want her to go, and yet they knew she needed to know certain things. She said, you know, they cut my hair. That was particularly hard for her grandmother because hair was considered to carry a certain spiritual domain of meaning and, and beauty and elegant nobility and how one presents oneself in one's body just as the young woman in the walker painting has her hair pulled back and with a little what's called a snood a little probably a woolen cap uh, that tucks in the back of her head and then all around her hair to hold her hair and also to keep her warm 
So we, if we said, we're cutting the English girl's hair off, would be devastating for her culture. So people cut, excuse me, cut Twyla's hair and forbade her from speaking her Iroquois or Haudenosaunee tribal languages. She was Seneca and Oneida. She was forbidden to speak them. So she said, I would lay in bed at night and pray in them. She didn't reject the Christian prayers, the Judeo-Christian prayers she was taught, but she didn't let go of her tribal history. She is the single greatest medicine woman I've ever met anywhere in the world. Her, her native name means she whose voice travels upon the wind. Beauty, beauty, beauty. <laughs>